Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Today's guest is Russ Smith. He goes by RG. RG was a Navy vet during the Vietnam era, uh, having served in Vietnam uh, in 7071. Uh, but later in life, he actually took part in DOD overseas shows. And these were from the years of 88 to 93. I had no idea what DOD overseas shows were. All I sort of knew uh, is that there's the USO. And I thought the USO was the was the organization that provided entertainment for our troops overseas. Well, uh, he used to tour as a, an opening act, as a comedian slash magician uh, for the Nancy Wiles Band. Uh, they sort of did some small venues uh, for troops, realized there weren't that many people showing up, so they asked, hey, send us to where people actually need us. And then they got uh, sent into some pretty hairy places. Um, he talks a lot about uh, those shows, uh, how he sort of developed his act, uh, what it was like touring, and a bit about the craziness that they got into. RG ended his time with the DoD overseas shows after a tour in Mogadishu. Um, that we don't really get into. That's not an area that, that he necessarily wanted to, to dive into. Um, but uh, what we were interested in talking about with this episode is that uh, there aren't just USO shows, like these top tier shows, the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders and Celebrities. There was a whole second tier of shows that would be toured around to troops that were in combat areas, uh, very kinetic areas uh, that needed entertainment. They needed a release of tension. And, and that's what these shows brought. Um, RG is very proud of his time touring uh, with the Nancy Wiles band um, and still does a bit of magic on the side. Uh, I think you'll find this uh, episode very fascinating and interesting as I did. So please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. Uh, thank you for supporting the podcast, and I hope that you enjoy this show. So joining us today is R.G. Smith. R.G., thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. Uh, I had never heard of DOD overseas shows. I'm really excited to dive into all of that, but there's a significant amount of history prior to you performing in the DOD overseas shows, uh, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you again for joining the podcast. Well, thank you, sir. It's an honor to be on here. I've enjoyed all your other podcasts and whatever you call them, scuttlebutts. And it's great to see people get a chance to talk about their unique experiences. Um, mine is based upon sending to you, well, you know, this is, here's what I did. I was a public affairs officer for the Navy headquarters in Saigon in 1771. And I toured with, I walked, I was an escort officer, I did a lot of things with press people, tours like this. And now somebody asked me to go on a tour with them, which was to me, it was like payback. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to go along with these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's how all that started. And uh, so you uh, were you drafted or did you enlist? I was a Penn State graduate out of uh, uh, Navy ROTC, where mm -hmm. General Pagonis was a few years ahead of me. Yeah, and um, I got commissioned in December. I landed in Tonsonut Air Base in March. Oh, wow. Um, so Navy, and you were PR. Uh, can you lead me through sort of how you got involved in that with the Navy and, and uh, <laughs> give us an overview of what your, your role was there in Vietnam, escorting, and, and what was that like? Well, my, uh, my, 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 my plan was, uh, like many people back in the, that late in the war, they probably didn't want to really rush into going there. It was winding down. Uh, things had changed dramatically at home, but uh, we had an obligation. You had to make a choice back then. So I figured I'd be in Navy ROTC and I found out I'm colorblind, so I can't fly a plane, drive a ship, be a medical person. I can do very little. So they said, you'll be a public affairs officer. So I went off to Benjamin Fort 
Benjamin uh, Harrison Ford out in Indiana to be trained and off I went and they said, okay, uh, welcome aboard here, Anson Smith. You're uh, in charge of the photo lab. I said, I don't know anything about photography. They said, don't worry about it. Neither did the last two or three guys. So it's like, well, what do I do? I said, we'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when I got over there, I figured, okay, I'm here. I'm gonna see as much of it as I can. And then I can go home and tell everybody. Well, I did. I saw as much as I could, but when I got home, nobody wanted to listen. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Though here we are 50 years later, and this is an opportunity. And now everybody kind of wants to hear about it and, and understand more of that era. Yeah, um, there's a lot of curiosity, and there, there, there's so few Navy in country. I'm talking the Brownwater Navy. Yeah. Uh, there were so few of us there by comparison, and there's so few of us left. So if we can save some of the things I had, some of the things the other guys who might chip in had, then we can preserve some of that for the curious in the future. It's great that you bring up the Brownwater Navy, the Mobile, mobile Riverine Force, um, uh, the collaboration between the Navy and the Army. Uh, and I'll pitch this for our listeners uh, that VBC, the Veterans Breakfast Club, has done some happy hours, live happy hours about the Mobile Riverine Force. We continue and plan to do more, um, but that's not the focus of this particular podcast, this particular scuttlebutt. We want to touch on that here with RG, uh, but I think the focus uh, for our podcast is the DOD Overseas Show. So um, having done public affairs officer and uh, you'd, you'd done that in Vietnam, were you still with the Navy or had you gotten out by the time oh, you no. started these touring shows in 88? Uh, I was two months in country. When a guy I went through SEER training with came down to a pier, I was going out on an overnight boat ride on a PBR with the crew. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, Smith, you're out of the Navy. He had a huge list of names and this big message. Immediately, all of these officers, career and guys like me, immediately discharged. And I said, well, are we going home? He said, my name's on here too, but there's an asterisk behind our names. Anybody in country Vietnam had to complete their entire tour and then boom, you're out. Mm -hmm. So I was in a total of about 15 months and 12 of that was in uh, South Vietnam. That's something that I've only ever touched on in the, in the Scuttlebutt podcast is that after Vietnam, they were, they were just discharging people. And that, that was right. Cause they didn't have any mm -hmm. need for them. Cause you know, the, the war was over. So they were just pushing people out. Um, did you feel like, uh, well, that's it. Like kind of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> sort of anticlimactic. Oh, no, there was a lot of climaxing going on my year. I got my ticket punched. And we can talk about that some other time because I, yeah. I went up the Mekong with the uh, Cambodian incursion in May of 70, which is a whole story unto itself. And which we'll get into with our happy yeah. hour, hopefully at, okay. at a future date. Yeah, not a happy story. But nonetheless, yeah. no, I was fine. I, my obligation was met. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back and restore my life and get on with whatever happened. I quit right. And after you got out, is this when you uh, started to, you know, get into a band, get into entertaining? Like, how did that begin? Well, I'd always tinkered around with magic tricks. I was a magician mm -hmm. as a kid, made some money with magic shows, and put it, you know, spending on what kids spend money on, which is more magic tricks. Right. Uh, then through life, I developed more and more of an interest. And then I wound up living back in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, emceeing a country music show on Saturday night. And a band came through there that said, you know, we, we've done tours, USO and DOD show tours. Would you like to come along with us? Nancy Wiles band was the name of the band. Mm -hmm. And I felt that was wonderful. Well, how do I do this? And they said, well, just we'll take care of it. You get a separate passport and a DOD passport. You are, you go out as a GS-12, which is like a field grade officer, lieutenant commander or major. 
and um, you get authority, uh, privileges, but no authority. <laughs> so we can stay in the officer's club instead of a, wherever, but where we went a lot, we were in a tent or on a ship somewhere. Um, and then so, uh, we just kept going. We became highly rated mm -hmm. in the DOD system. So were you a magician with this touring group or were you in the band? Oh, I can't, I have no talent, so I'm a magician. <laughs> it takes talent to be a magician. Like it's a different set, but it's certainly oh, talent. Gosh. No, I, I was, I would open, I would tell some jokes. I would um, do a couple of magic tricks, get some troopers or, or sailors participating. Mm -hmm. And then I'd bring on the band. We had a whole, whole show we put on. We just didn't go out like a band and, uh, and just play a bunch of songs. So mm -hmm. We started to talk to them, got them going. And again, like I said, we, we got a pretty high rating because you were rated everywhere you went. Yeah. And we went out for, we were lucky we could only go out, we would only go out a week or two weeks, maybe three, rather than the general DOD circuit, which is, it could be a few months you're out there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of entry-level entertainers of, of any discipline, you, you go crazy after about three weeks. You lose touch with a lot of things. Yeah. So it's not for everybody. Um, now, even though you were working for the DOD, you weren't, it, this wasn't like re-enlisting. You were your own, oh, no. still a civilian no. working for them. Yeah, it was a civilian, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Side gate, whatever. But we, we were, we, like I said, we were GS-12s. Mm -hmm. We didn't, didn't have, tell people what to do, but right. we had military ID cards, DOD and, and t-shirts and hats. Yes, we got, this was our pay. Here we go. This is a DOD hat. For those, for those listening in, uh, uh, RG put up a, a blue hat that has a, a logo on it for DOD overseas shows. Those are nice. I like those. Oh, these are, yeah, this is a 50-year-old t-shirt and uh, yeah. they, they still work. And again, we did a couple for the USO. So right. this is a hat you got to be careful wearing these days because it's a bright red with scrambled eggs. Uh, it says true. USO across the top. Yeah. So around, around some neighborhoods these days, you don't want to be seen in a bright red hat. But this was a USO hat that one of the troops gave to me. And the later tours, they were US, uh, United Nations sponsored uh, effects, efforts. So we wore these. You got the United uh, Nation hats. United Nation hats. That was the Balkans and Somalia. So this is really interesting to me because when I hear about performing for troops, my first thought is the USO. So how were the DOD overseas shows different than USO? And, and I'm guessing you were sponsored in some way by USO. Can you give us some historical background on that to help clarify? Well, as I understand it, um, now, again, everything I say is what I remember, what yeah. I experienced. <laughs> you mm -hmm. got to be careful these days because everybody's experience is different, but parallel. And, and this is what I'm, I'm telling is memory will, will serve uh, us best. Um, the DOD shows at the time were sort of a second tier uh, touring mechanism now. In fact, if you go on the net and search up Armed Forces Entertainment, AFE, mm -hmm. they changed it from DOD shows to APHIS, like they do with names in the military of everything a lot. And there's an yeah, uh, AFES, Armed Forces Entertainment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Armed Forces Entertainment. It's a beautiful website. Mm -hmm. But back then in the Stone Age, it was a bunch of um, uh, combined military officers working in an office in Alexandria, putting on these circuits that you'll see on that site where there's like, they've changed a bit, but they have in various parts of the world, you'd go out and do that entire circuit mm -hmm. from the Caribbean to Europe to parts of Asia to uh, Oceania. And they would, uh, they would have their own system and their favorite acts. And on mm -hmm. occasion, we would get called because we were, like I said, we were popular in that structure. 
the USO would be the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and football coaches and bands and every name comedians or whatever. And, and what, were, in, in what your description is of that is like tier one. Tier yeah, one would be yeah, the yeah, Dallas right. Cowboy cheerleaders, right. celebrities, things like that. But mm -hmm. tier two would be sort of what you're categorizing as what the DOD shows were that you were a part right. of. Right. Mm -hmm. okay. And we, we were more flexible and we wanted to, we wanted to see other things. Uh, we The first couple of tours I did with them, it was going to a rec center on a base and somebody would come, but most wouldn't. And then we, we were sent down to Central America and um, I said, well, nobody's coming. <laughs> Why are we here? Let's get an audience. Where can we go where somebody will really like to have a show? So yeah. from that point on, the Nancy Wiles band would go places that others wouldn't and stay longer. I'm talking about out in the field, we'd chop her up onto a mountain. We'd go to places like the Balkans and Somalia and all over the Persian Gulf during those back and forth wars. And there are a lot of stories involved with that. But um, it, it, it was something where, boy, they thought, the audience is no, there was nowhere for them to be. They were stuck in a jungle somewhere. Yeah. And they had a generator and a flatbed truck. And that was our stage. The generator blew up. They put some big uh, tow trucks with lights pointing at us. That was our lights. And we'd have a heck of a good time. So, um, you know, those, in fact, in, in um, Panama, after the Noriega situation was resolved, we did a small group of contractors who were building a road for the Panamanians. And we'd, we'd go out on a, two or three helos, you know, some UEs, and we, we'd spend three or four hours with them, hmm. playing and talking with them for at least two of it. And one of the guys said, man, Lee Greenwood was here last week. We hate him. He sang two songs and he left. <laughs> you guys stayed. Well, Lee Greenwood did everybody. He went. He went to probably fifty places. Yeah. So for them, it was we were we were a better place. But uh, it was and sort of like. Sorry to interrupt. And this is what led to your higher rating is just like the person, you know, yeah, the personability of of this, like being able to be personable with all of the troops, spend more time with them. I, I think so, and we had fun doing it. The drummer yeah. and I had a lot of uh, Mikey Holtzman in Hagerstown, Maryland. He and I got to be doing some silly and goofy things with the drums and, you know, rim shots and the things I might tell something that's funny and but you get something like that. Yeah. A lot of spontaneity. And then the band was very talented. Nancy Wiles was a great singer and David Nicely was our producer. And then get some spot uh, professional backup player to go along in various tours. But I think the four or five of us were the core of it. And we were welcome pretty much where we would go and then go back a couple months later if there was another tour in need. Now, when you said, hey, we want to go to some of the places where these troops actually need this, um, uh -huh. did the Nancy Wiles band, 100%, they were all for it? Because the, the, the travel slate was probably to some pretty dangerous places. It was. Uh, well, nobody objected. Right. Uh, there were four or five of us. We were friends. And everywhere we went uh we were assured that we would be kept safe yeah. that didn't happen on the last tour but who would know in a place like Mogadishu but in Panama things had settled down we went into into the gulf right before and then right after the gulf the first gulf war mm -hmm. we went into Panama right before and right after the Noriega situation was resolved so the hostilities had been settled. I mean, what do you call them? They were wars as far as I was concerned. The bullets yeah. are hot. You'd call them an incursion, you police action, whatever. Uh, we were going in to some pretty remote places, 
that's mm -hmm. generally where the people were that really were out on the front lines, so to speak, in a weird way. There's no front lines anymore. So does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Because, you know, I was looking at sort of the tours that you did, like Canada, Greenland, Spain, Turkey, first Gulf War, Noriega, and during the drug wars, Panama, Honduras, uh, Diego Garcia, the Balkans, Croatia, Macedonia, Bosnia, Somalia, Mogadishu. Um, the last one you just mentioned, and we could we could get to that if you're willing. Um, but you start in pretty small venues, pretty pretty limited amount of people, and it seems like it kind of ramped up in intensity until it hit that. And then did you guys just sort of stop after Mogadishu? I said, "Don't call me anymore. <laughs> I love you guys. You love me." You know, cats have nine lives. I, wow. I, was, I was at home ironing the next day. I said, Archie, you've been around nine wars mm -hmm. from Vietnam and Cambodia and all this other stuff. I said, stop. You know, my, my uncle was was killed in World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, my uncle served in, in World War II. Uh, my dad served in World War II. So it was like kind of, I've, I've been through this. I've been too close. Uh, get back to your life. You got a great wife, a small business. Get real. Plus, I was 45 years old, and when you're running from explosions when you're 45, you're a little bit slower than when you're 19. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and you did this all this for no pay. There was no pay well, involved? Uh, I figured, well, what do I do? Charge per the show, per the day, per the whatever? And they said, well, there's no pay. Um, you get uh, per diem. You get $60 a day. You get paid on the second day in cash in 20s. So we would go to the finance office once we get to wherever we were. You'd have a stack of 20s about this big, roll them up and stick them in your socks or wherever. Mm -hmm. And if you're going out two or three weeks, you go, that's it. You're not getting any more. Mm -hmm. uh, the troops took care of us. Navy took care of us. You know, we had food. We had protection. We had whatever they could give us. You know, mm -hmm. you go to a place, they say, we have nothing, but you're welcome to, to it. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Yeah. Um, so we we uh, we didn't have a pay that. So I owned a small business at the time and my wife and I were in it together. We had a few employees and I said, look, I, I'll be doing this. I want to go. And you get supported by that. And when you're in business for yourself, you have the right to neglect it, which I certainly did, but yeah. should have fired myself, but uh, no. So uh, lead me through sort of, you know, whenever you would land, you know, you said the Navy took care of you, the, you know, the, how did, how did this all work? You, you'd be in a tour, you wouldn't be in a tour bus, you'd, you'd fly in on military and they'd get you there and say, okay, welcome. That's where you're sleeping. This is where you're performing and you perform how many nights and, and mm. how did that go? And what was, what were the relationships like with the, with the, well, the, the tours were prearranged on we would fland in such and such a place we would do these many days in these many locations mm -hmm. we would be met by the mwr if it was a place that had morale welfare recreation person a civilian i've never heard of that. So morale welfare recreation oh that yeah interesting that, okay that that was their job it was you know somebody that said he runs the gym or he and she runs the weight room and mm -hmm. the movie night and games and whatever um but we flew in a variety of methods on a couple of them. We flew out of Martinsburg, West Virginia that had a C-130 contingent and they needed training. We were from that area and the producer went into the base and said, you know, we need to go to Thule, Greenland at Christmas time. <laughs> you guys need some flight hours. And back then they did. They had money and they had flight hours. Mm -hmm. So we flew uh, them a couple of times. Some were, we once we flew out of Andrews after the Persian Gulf, first Persian Gulf War, we had a VIP 
status out of uh, Andrews Air Base over to uh, Bahrain. And then uh, others were commercial, or there's a, a loop, a worldwide loop the military has, it's civilian flight, but it's, well, I don't forget what they call it. Mm -hmm. It was the embassy flight. It stopped all the way around the world and all the major bases. Yeah. But when we landed, it was a variety of, you know, guy comes on the bus and he says, okay, give you a little information on the, the country. You know, when you fly into Honduras, <laughs> life here is subsistence farming. Don't expect a lot. Be nice to these people. You know, the indigenous personnel happen to be the people who own the place. So we can't go in and act like Americans right away. So yeah. we'd be, get a thing of what to do, what not to do. And mm -hmm. we're going into the Islamic world. You've got to not do this. You got to not do certain things or cross your legs and have your shoe towards somebody that would offend them by the sole of the shoe. Yeah. Little handy hints. And then we would uh, be off and they'd take care of us, get us paid. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was depending on what they had and the conditions at the time. Yeah. And again, the, the first few were, were pretty, pretty sound and, and orderly. But when we got into the Balkans and down into Mogadishu, it was just okay. Here's a flak jacket, get used to it, you know, put this yeah. on your head, <laughs> keep right. it on. And you, you just did what you did. And uh, our, our job was to have fun with the, the people, those really yeah. sacrificing. Mm -hmm. And we did. And they were all 19, 20, 21 year old guys, right? Like these are young guys overall. Uh, it was it was the whole command structure. You know, okay. the, the O's would come around. You know, a general would meet us in a place here or there, a high-ranking captain in the Navy would welcome us because, hey, we're on there. And plus, they want to make sure we're going to be nice people Yeah, because <laughs> they're on the hook for what happens to us and how we act. Uh -huh. uh, so uh, it, it was, we have some E's assigned to us, you know, E4, E5 maybe. And this is cool because it's a lot more exciting or fun than what they're normally doing which is yeah. their regular military job. So they, they, they love being around us. We got into Honduras and Panama and there were places we went or one of our guys said, well, I was there last night or I was, I said, how did you get there? That's, we had to, he said, well, you know, we have ways of getting there. We're watching you. I said, you like the show? He said, no, we're watching you. <laughs> I said, oh my God, you're looking for us because we didn't go through customs all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're watching us, but they're making sure we're not getting get, taking a hand off and bringing it back home. Right. Um, now, in your downtime, you if you were there for a couple of days, a week, what, what were you doing besides the shows? Um, we'd uh, see what there was. There would be on occasion, somebody would take us on a tour of the Panama Canal or places in Eastern Europe that had the way back when, like Macedonia. Mm -hmm. They gave us some tours, interact with the locals, go shopping. Uh, we would drink beer. There was beer consumed, play cards, get along. And, uh, you know, but we try to work as much as we could. If we get a day off, that's fine. If we had to work every day. That'd be fine too. Did you, was part of sort of the, uh, I'm assuming part of the reason that you did the DOD overseas shows was one, maybe, you know, well, obviously the first most important probably be uh, taking care of the troops, giving them something that they don't have. But also, sort of a side uh, a side perk is being able to travel the world. Well, yeah, it was a strange thing. Uh, back in this was between eighty eight and ninety three. Back then, there was a lot of shooting matches going on. Mm -hmm. I was reading the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania newspaper in the travel section, and it it listed the ten most dangerous places in the world. We'd been to five of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a unique place where nobody's going, but there's reasons for that. Yeah. Now. 
also I'm interested in how, as a comedian, as a magician, you got to work on your act. You can't just like figure something out and go out there and, you know, ham it up. So how did you uh, perfect your act and did it always land? Or were there times where it was like the troops just didn't get it and you were like, I'm kind of struggling? Uh, well, they did save things. And back then, uh, there was a different time with the kind of material you could present. We, we worked clean all the time. Now you but, say worked uh, clean. Is that we clean jokes? We didn't, we didn't curse. We didn't okay. dirty jokes. Nothing yeah. off color. Right. Nothing racist or sexist or whatever. Right. Because that's what we did when we performed regularly. And I had been performing uh, for several years as a, for banquets and other kind of events. So it was just the same effects, the same words. You just have to bring it to life. And it's like you're saying it for the first time. Yeah. And a lot of audience participation. When you're younger, you're quicker at your brain and your mouth comes out with funny things. And uh, get somebody up from wherever they are and they're helping you with a trick or an effect or something some funny things can happen spontaneity can you lead us through one of your uh one of your i don't want to say tricks that's the wrong word uh one of your <laughs> acts like one a, a, a particular part of one that you really enjoyed doing well we did a game show oh, okay uh, it, it wouldn't be an opener because it takes a while to set up there's always a stupid person that everybody perceives as a dumb person in a group yeah. So, we, especially in the military, and sometimes they really turned out to be stupid people. No, <laughs> but uh, I had a game show that I didn't invent, but I had done professionally for years where uh, we get three people against one person, three people smart, one person, the one with no common sense. Mm -hmm. I have an MC reading the questions. I have somebody in a, a pink boa, the Vanna White with the prize if they win it. So, you know, an army sergeant looks real good when he's wearing a pink boa. So a lot of fun going on and they pick numbers out of a bag and corresponding with questions the MC would read. So the, uh, the people, the smart guys, they'd get uh, questions like name the four major rivers traversing Mongolia. Well, there's nobody gonna get that. Yeah. And the other one would get uh, who's buried in Grant's tomb, those. We go back and forth and um, Toward the end, it was pretty crazy because a lot of carrying on and people being enjoying. Just, just want to release some laughter. These guys yeah. don't laugh when you're sleeping in Honduras on a mountaintop. There's nothing funny. <laughs> so we would show up and do things like that. And the drummer was always good with his, with his uh, noises in the background. Right. Percussion. Yeah, pretty much they only have like gallows humor and, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, soldier, uh, regular soldier's humor. So you get this like, you know, this show that comes in that probably breaks all the tension. They're not there to be doing doing jokes and funny things, mm -mm. right? Um, so, if you don't mind, can can you talk a bit about what happened in Mogadishu that led you to say, "Don't call me again"? Um, <laughs> like, what was it? What was it about that area that and and the events that happened that sort of said, "You know, I'm done." You know that that's a topic that is that has changed my life. Um, mm -hmm. That two weeks or two and a half, three weeks, we were. We flew into Zagreb and went to the Balkans and then one night in Berlin and down to Mogadishu. If you're interested, it would be another time because it would be probably, there were so many incredible things that happened and so many dangerous things. And to this day, uh, you know, that's when the world changed. When the Balkans happened and Caucasians are killing Caucasians because of angry over religion back in the days of the Ottoman Empire mm -hmm. that had simmered for hundreds of years and neighbors were killing the children of neighbors, you know, these kind of things 
and plus it was a UN event where you had 40 countries represented. So we're entertaining a unique brand of human beings. Anyhow, it, time may be another time. Not a problem. Um, but may I may I ask about that? How do you bring, and, and this is for, I guess, all of the shows, how do you bring levity to a situation that can be that serious? Um, you just do what you do. Uh -huh. uh, we did some refugees in Zagreb. You know, these were hundreds and hundreds of Muslim refugees. Mm -hmm. And they're, they have nothing. They're in an old Russian tower of apartments. They've been there for months. They're probably going to be there forever. Hope without hope. Children everywhere. The families are there. They come to see what the noise is because they're bored. And then we, we would set up and do some music and magic. And uh, it's like, oh, my God, how do you do it? You do what you do. And try to keep it without uh, interpretation of language. I did a lot of visual things with what I was doing. And uh, it was rewarded because I'll never forget the faces of the kids. You know, I would do my thing first and I was done because I, I did talking later in the act. Well, they don't speak English. I don't speak Croatian. And I, I was like the Pied Piper. I've got 40 children following me back to this van to reset all of the magic props that I brought along, these hankies and colorful things. Yeah. Kids were on the roof looking upside down into this these windows. <laughs> and oh, I was thinking, wow. God, I don't ever explain. But I got a picture of those, those kids all around me and one of the sponsors. And maybe we can look at it another time, talk more about it. Yeah, because I was going to say, because magic, uh, I don't know the history of magic. Um, but I guess I'll start with what got you into magic and magic tricks. I was lonely as a child with no friends and was ignored all my life. So you do what you can. You say, hey, look at this. <laughs> right. It was a curiosity. It was a fun thing. And then later in life, I was I was working in sales job. I was out to dinner with friends in different industries. I did some tricks after dinner. The one guy was a buyer for a major company. He said, you know, I get salespeople calling me all the time. If you you were coming, I'd have you in first and buy your stuff. So I said, wow, cool. <laughs> so my next route in my territory, I was selling hospital supplies. Time. I went around and didn't talk products. I didn't try to sell anything to anybody. I said, you know, I've been working on this and do it effect and this and say, well, anything else? No, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So that 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 worked out pretty well. Is magic what the question I was getting at is magic universal? So you you take it culturally across around the world, and uh, yeah, the kids are mesmerized by it. But I would, you know, my thinking is, is that you know, magic is more of a Western thing. And you, you know, you do an effect or do something in front of kids who may have never seen something like this. And imagine it just kind of blew their mind. Like what you just made something disappear or, you know, mm -hmm. hold something out. I'm, I'm, you know, using an example, pulled something out of a hat or something. And, and how did they react to that? Obviously followed you around, but like, what was the energy like? Uh, wonderful. Uh, really was uh, for most, for the most part in the Muslim world, the elders would take over and they weren't too happy about that. Interesting. Uh, Why is that? Uh, it's a religious base. You know, okay. a, lot, a lot of people and magic didn't start in, in the USA. It started in China, mm -hmm. India, back in the ancient times, Egypt. Yeah. So there, there's, it's been going on for quite some time. And um, if you if you be cautious how you present it, if somebody's never seen something before, there's one effect where I don't smoke, but half the world smokes. I would be able to, in short sleeves and surrounded up and down people on top of me, take a lit cigarette that somebody handed me was lit 
show my hand empty, drop it in my hand, go like this, and it's gone. Mm -hmm. It's like, poof, whoa. <laughs> you do that to a Somali. <laughs> thinking, Wait a minute. They're standing back. Yeah. So I guess you haven't seen a lot of magicians. Myself? Yeah. Well, it's in some ways, like I remember as a kid, I, I, I saw I was actually pulled up on stage at a magic show and <laughs> had a sword shoved through my neck. It was oh it yeah, was, the old yeah. sword through neck. It was it was incredible. And I have like video of it from my grandparents, you know, um, but my my thinking really is like, you know, as you tour this, this show and, and go to these areas, you know, uh, my magic wouldn't be the first thing I'd think of to be an entertaining piece for a group and not and especially like kids or other cultures that might uh, that might not understand what this is. And, and then there's the language divide where you can't be like, I'm going to show you something that looks unbelievable, but has <laughs> an effect around it, you know? So like you show something like that and the kids are just like, what? Or a guy backs away from you because he's like, what did you just do? You know? Um, so it's interesting to me to sort of think of this in a different like mindset of how they are experiencing it. And did they accept it as, wow, that's really cool. Or were they like freaked out by it? had anybody be upset by or scared by it it's up to the yeah. vision of uh the nancy wiles band and david nicely saying you know if we had you on our tour because some bands don't have maybe a front person to go out and tell some jokes do this and that yeah and that's where they thought i could fit and it did and it served us very well and a lot of audiences had some fun yeah um but uh mag magic is, is still still a universal uh, way to express oneself totally uh, tension spans changed a lot in this country and others you have to you can't get up you can't say pick a card i'll find it in 18 and a half minutes you got to find that card within 40 seconds or yeah. they're gone they're on their phone <laughs> <laughs> so we're all adjusting to that but where we went people these weren't urban areas mm -hmm. so um people were saying hmm look at this and then the mu music blended together. We put it as, again, a show, not just a block for me. They'd go sit in the back and have a drink or something. No, it was right. a whole start to finish show. Did the Nancy Wiles Band continue to tour after you said you were done? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't think. I think we were also devastated by by the the final week. We just saw over two weeks time. It was just we stopped telling each other, don't say what next. How can this be? <laughs> just stop saying what next because we were finding out. I'm not teasing here. It's just it, it bears, yeah. you know, I haven't forgotten. They haven't. We did get together a couple times just to check on each other. Yeah. Uh, I would say there's PTSD involved. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've got a disability for PTSD from my Vietnam days. Um, and I knew what it was. And mm -hmm. that's why I said when when things came at us pretty hard, I gathered a group up and said, who, who can we talk to? They found a, a priest who was there mm -hmm. and uh we're still cordial and friendly but it uh it, it did damage all of us interesting and so do you, you don't regret though any of the shows that you did oh, no. or being able to get out there and entertain I, I don't regret it because it was my idea and it was their idea mm -hmm. and my idea was the one maybe that shouldn't have been accepted by let's go somewhere where somebody really needs something right well those guys are out there for a reason Mm -hmm. they're not in a, a safe area totally safe but it was safe till the very end and i think we were proud of what we were able to do and bring to people and because they'd come up to us and say i can't believe i can't believe you're here i said well you're here 
yeah, but, and we were standing outside of Mogadishu. It's 110 degrees every day. The Saharan dust is blowing. Guys are lining up for hamburgers and hot dogs. There's about 100 people in line. And some officer comes up to us and said, hey, go, go, go ahead, right to the front. I said, no, 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 no way. He said, you go to the front. We wouldn't be eating this good if it wasn't for you being here. <laughs> this is a government hot dog and a weenie or a hamburger. Yeah, but to them that was as good as they could get. Then I realized we we maybe got one hot meal a day. We're living on sea rations, or the ones we could trade from the other countries that had better uh, survival food than we did. The Germans had great MREs. But you <laughs> did. didn't expect that. Um, I also didn't expect, you know, in our sort of leading up to this discussion, this recording for the podcast, is that this seems like it was very much a double-edged sword, these, these, these tours. Like, there's this incredible amount of uh, gratitude being shown to you guys, and um, being able to offer this to the soldiers that are in the field that don't have this, this, this entertainment element um, to lighten the load on them. Um, but there was also a toll. There was also a, a, a price for that. Well, yeah, but um, I think we've all come to grips with it from the mm -hmm. band, as far as I know. Um, and it's nice when, when you're an entertainer, if people are just talking to themselves or doing other things, when you're doing what you do, mm -hmm. that hurts. So they, they were kind and they were receptive. And, and I, I must say again, they're, they're scads of entertainers of still doing these AFES or those DOD shows that, uh, you know, they should get all the credit too. So they're still doing, you know, I've read an article recently that a lot of USO, uh, like the physical places for USO are kind of shutting down around the country. So there's a bit of a, bit of a shift. USOs, of course, is a nonprofit or, you know, part of or a nonprofit organization. So it's suffering from the same type of financial difficulties, mm -hmm. I guess, as everybody else is in this sort of climate. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there are still shows that are touring. Is that right? Like, even though US is not currently necessarily engaged somewhere, there are still these DOD shows that go around. Oh yeah, there are six circuits that are still working and they don't always have to be associated with combat. <laughs> so we still have people stuck somewhere or serving somewhere who really benefit from some live entertainment. This changed over the, you know, now you do video games and movies, maybe you don't need as much, but uh, yeah, it's always nice to see a live show. Now they have Greenland involved with uh, the tour goes all the way down to uh, Cuba. Yeah. Used to be, we went up to a, parts of Canada with a secret sub base and then up into two spots in Thule. And so it just, it's morphed out into what it is. There's just less people in the military and there's less money. And I don't know where it is today. I, I think firmly from what I heard after our experience trying to get out of Somalia, they, they didn't allow tours to go to certain places anymore that were just flat out the combat zones. Gotcha. Um, and have you ever heard from anybody who is who saw one of those shows that you were that you toured? Uh, well, hmm. No, maybe there's somebody out there right now who says ah, that magician. He got a lot older, but I remember the guy with the rings and the game show and the band and the drummer. And uh, if they are, maybe they'll emerge. And that's part of the wonderful things that you're doing. Well, I, I hope so. I hope one of our listeners may have, you know, taken in one of your shows uh, during that time between 88 and 93. So get in touch with me, uh, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. And I'd be happy to connect them with you, RG. 
Um, now, uh, what about any of the current performers? Did, has anybody contacted you after your experiences and said, what tips do you have? Or if they didn't, <laughs> can I ask you what tips do you have for people that may be you know, interested in doing DOD overseas shows? Well, you've got to qualify. You've got to be talented enough. Uh, they have a website. And there, I was looking at it yesterday. I've, I've searched DOD shows and it's hard to find anything. That goes back so far, it's not even on the internet. That's old. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> so uh, the AFE uh, website is really nice and pretty and it shows everything and they still have magic featured. And if you're interested, get on there, uh, send them a video. You don't have to go audition live anymore. You better have something. You better have some form of support for yourself because you may not be making money, although maybe they do pay now. You may have to say, gee, dude, can I go out for six or eight weeks and sit around a hotel room in Turkey? Uh, you know, there's certain places you, where do I go now? I've been to restaurants and I don't speak the language and these people are looking at me. <laughs> so it's, it's an adjustment. You want to be mature enough to handle being out there alone in a foreign land with, well, now you can call, you can FaceTime. So right. it's a lot easier. Back then we were, certain things happened to us. And I, I just, I would demand somebody somewhere goes somewhere and calls our families or one person's family. So everybody back home can realize we're safe. Yeah. Because there was stuff happening in places where we were in the last tour that were just so dramatic and so violent. I'm thinking my family's going to hear about this. They know I'm here. Somebody better help out. Right. Um, and speaking of that, so when after you said you were done and you got out of, of the DOD shows, wh where did your life take you from there? Did you continue to perform? Oh, sure. I, yeah, to this day, still stumble through some things. I, mm -hmm. I uh, had a, an act and we had the the insurance agency my wife and I had in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And I, I, I would do 80 to 120 shows a year in the region. Wow. You know, after that, back then people, every company had a banquet every Christmas or their company picnic and there were magicians and singers and jugglers and ventriloquists everywhere. So mm -hmm. it was common to have uh, a lot of work if, if you pursued it. And most of it between Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, well, my audience knows that I have a background in performing, so I know, uh, RG, that when you get bit by the performer bug, it sort of it stays with you. You have that itch. And, and oh, really, yeah. like, I thank the podcast for giving me that platform where I sort of can scratch that itch of, you know, being on, as you as you know. Well, show me a magic trick. Don't you know any magic to show me? Oh, I wish I could just show you this stress <laughs> ball that I have now. <laughs> That's standard issued equipment for everybody. I, I disappear stress into this ball. It's incredible. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I think everybody's doing that trick. You got to come up with something new. <laughs> I'm an old hat at that. <laughs> Um, well, RJ, I, I, you know, I want to thank you for for this very informative uh, time with you, being on the podcast and just sort of giving my audience and myself sort of this history lesson of of what these shows were, why you were a part of them, how they've changed, what what they were about. Um, I'm sure they were incredibly, uh, uh, like you said, they changed your life. They did, and I'm 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 grateful we were able to do it and come back whole and uh, affect the people we did in a very positive way, take care of our people. And uh, I saw countless refugees in the last tour. I mean, to affect someone's life, that's like in Vietnam, there were countless refugees in Saigon on the street, living on, on a straw mat with a one pot. And you think, how could I possibly help these people? So in some way, we all have come to grips with what we can do with what we have. And that, that's the best we can offer up. 
That's a great message uh, and wonderful and a wonderful one to end on um, to our audience. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. If you have any thoughts or comments about this episode, please email me. I mentioned Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. RJ, I want to thank you so much for your time uh, today and for telling your story. Um, love to see you on a future VBC event. Um, and we'll hopefully see you hopefully also on another future scuttlebutt. Okay, thank you for inviting me. All the best to everyone. God bless America. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. DD accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at DD. That's DD Auto Salvage. Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to DND. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.